the dream die here for Duke. Think about this in its entirety. Christian Leitner, the greatest college basketball player of his era, one of the best ever, is sitting on the bench thinking that he, at this point, is the GOAT, no matter how well he played. The shot of him not blocking that shot is going to be the shot that lives in history. And that's stewing in his mind and knows that he's going to get one shot. He's going to have one chance to make everything right. And he had to depend on his teammates. He was double teamed. But he knew that he had one chance to make everything right again and bring balance to the game. And he had his one shot. And for a lot of guys, you only get one. There's the pass to Leitner. Puts it up. All right, Will, here we are. Season one, episode five. We're getting near the end here. Season one, just two more episodes left. And uh, so far, it's been great, I think. Today, we've got an interesting game. A deep track. A deep track, if you will, a deep cut. We've got the 1992 Elite Eight game between Duke and Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I say that this is a little bit more unique than the last few is because this is genuinely the first one that we've done that I did not watch live as it was happening. All the other ones, even even the 1998 NBA Finals game, although I didn't remember all of it, I definitely watched that game as a six-year-old. This is the first game, this was happened the year I was born. And so this is the first game we've done that we did not watch in its initial live airing. And watching the game, it definitely had a different feel than when we watched the other ones because of that, mm -hmm. because we hadn't watched it before. And there was, I mean, the only play from this game that I really knew was the last the one. The last one, yeah. And so the whole lead up, I didn't even know that it went to overtime, for example. And I didn't either until you spoiled it for me. <laughs> and so this definitely had a different feel watching this one than we did watching the other ones, that we knew the players well, we knew the coaches well, which we know the coaches well in this game. but And we know some players. And we know a few players but just had a different feel overall, it being an entirely unknown, as opposed to the other ones where we actually knew pretty well what was going to happen. Obviously, this is a big game because, well, first of all, just the names Duke and Kentucky. It doesn't playing, get bigger. Does, ba college basketball doesn't get bigger than that. Probably by far, I would say, the two most elite established basketball programs in the country, mm -hmm. the only two that have really had sustain, sustained success across decades and decades. I mean... UCLA at a time was a blue blood of college mm -hmm. basketball, but haven't really been nope. a legitimate contender in years. Mm -hmm. And so these are really the two programs, along with North Carolina, that are the elite of the elite in mm -hmm. college basketball. And at the time of the playing of this game in 1992, that was certainly true for Duke, who in this season was Christian Leitner's senior season, and he went to four straight Final Fours mm -hmm. in his career and won two national championships. This was, I don't know, it felt like the height or the peak of Duke's dominance under Coach K. Mm -hmm. Kentucky, on the other hand, was a completely different story. And I know we're used to Kentucky now being dominant, and they were up to this point in college basketball, but just a few years before this game, 
had almost basically received the death penalty in their program <laughs> from recruiting violations, from paying players, and then also from academic fraud. Not all that different from things that we see today, to be quite frank. And what's so ironic is that the man, the man they brought in... <laughs> To patch all this up was Rick Patino. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. <laughs> I didn't even think about it like that. But that is funny. Like they brought the Godfather him in to clean himself. everything up. Oh my goodness. I did not even realize <laughs> that. The irony of that is incredible. So they had been, you know, basically banned from postseason. They couldn't play, not even in the NCAA tournament. They couldn't even play in the SEC tournament. Um, so as what as per usual, when when programs go through things like this, you saw it with USC for sure. Mm-hmm. Where when you get drilled with these these NCAA sanctions where you can't go to bowl games or you can't go to postseason, you lose scholarships, the team really, really suffers. Mm-hmm. And th- that was definitely the case for Kentucky. They were as much of a powerhouse as anyone leading up to that point. But once these these sanctions sort of set in, all their best players left. <laughs> I mean, that and that's not an exaggeration. All of their best players left the program. And there were just... a one, the group of seniors on this team, this 1992 team, were the, the seniors that stuck it out. And they're guys who, if you saw them at your local gym, you would not think that they were good basketball players. You would probably think you could beat them one-on-one. You could probably assemble a group of five guys and probably beat the, this group of Kentucky seniors is basically what they were. They're beloved in Kentucky history for that, for that they suck it out through the program. Rightfully they played, so. They, they played such a big part in getting them back to where they needed to be as a program, but were so bad but individually. I mean, this is an all-time great college basketball game, and I don't think I realized just how great it was and how w- widely regarded it is as one of the greatest college basketball games ever played. I thought it was just more famous for a moment but it turns out that it's much more expansive than that, that it's actually, you know, widely held as one of the greatest college basketball games ever played. So Duke coming in was the number one seed in the East region, number one overall <laughs> seed. They were wire to wire the number one team in the country that year. They were 30 and two. They did lose two games. They lost at North Carolina and at Wake Forest, but never lost that number one ranking. And they had an impressive resume. They, they had non-conference wins at Michigan, which was the Fab Five. Mm-hmm. They had a neutral site win against St. John's, who was number seven in the country at the time, and they won at LSU, and that LSU team had a guy on their team who wore number 32, and his name was Shaquille (laughs) O'Neal. And not only did they beat them, but Christian Leitner dominated him in that game. I look back on the box score at that, and he dominated that game. And they were the AP number one every week. Leitner was a consensus two-time All-American. He was a senior, had been to Final Four every year. He was averaging 21 points, eight rebounds, a couple of assists, a couple of steals, and a block. And it's not a stretch to say he's the most hated player in college basketball history. I'm not sure that there's really been a second most hated player that's that's even gotten close to him, except for maybe Grayson Allen. Yeah, I was going to say, the guys that you think of when you think of hated college basketball players are still Duke guys. It's Grayson Allen of our time. And then I think Bobby Hurley couldn't have been that far behind Leitner. I think he's maybe... Uh, forgotten a little bit in that conversation just because he played with Leitner. Um, but Leitner was great. He Coming into this game, he was eight points away from the all-time tournament scoring record, which is impressive. He The top five in that record was Elvin Hayes of Houston, then Christian Leitner, 
Danny Manning, who went to Kansas, Oscar Robertson, the big O, who played at Cincinnati, and then Glenn Rice, who I believe they call the big dog, who played at <laughs> Michigan. Um, it's interesting because that's a record that he obviously breaks. He broke it in this in game. In this game, yep. And then played two more games in his career mm-hmm. after that. And that's a record that he holds, and that will probably never be broken, Yeah, because, I don't think. And the reason is, is because, and we, we talk about the way things change in this podcast, but a great player will never, ever, as far as we can tell, play four years in college basketball ever again. Not anymore. Now, interesting that there was a vote today, actually, that the NCAA passed some sort of rule that they will allow players to profit. That's still not going to change this. Um, I mean, college basketball right now is on the edge of existence. It's it, it, it honestly barely exists. It's like a minor league for the NBA, essentially. Um, and also speaking of changes, but Duke is also radically different because, I, I mean, the, the easiest way to say this is that Duke is no longer composed of scrappy, annoying white guys that can shoot. Now right. they have Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett and guys that will dunk on you and, and get drafted number one overall. It's not, um, it's not Bobby Hurley, Grayson Allen, J.J. Redick, Greg Paulus. It's none of these guys anymore, but they're getting the top recruits, um, you know, the black guys that have 40-inch verticals and go number one overall. And it felt like Coach K tried to resist that culture for as long as he possibly Until could. he realized, yeah, he did. Until he realized that it was just too pervasive. Uh-huh. Like, there was just no way around it. Yeah. That just was the way that it was. If he wasn't going to recruit guys that wanted to come make their name and then go to the NBA the next year, then he wasn't going to get the best players. Yep. And the year that he really decided to do that, he won the he national won championship. <laughs> and that solidified it. Like, well... Okay, yeah. I had Tyus Jones. Yeah, um, Tyus Jones and Jalil Okafor. Jalil Okafor, Grayson Okafor Allen, ironically, Justice was on Winslow. That team. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so the year that he decided to buy into that, saw the fruits. But that's a record that, that will never be broken. No. Just because of the way things are. And I don't see a way that it'll ever change, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I don't see a, a scenario, a change that the NCAA can bring about to basketball that's going to make players stay for all four years ever again. It's just yeah. not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And even if we do see it, I don't know that we'd see a player of Christian Leitner's caliber do that as consistently for four straight years, go to four final fours. Cause, yeah, because you have to be on good teams, too. You have to be on good teams you can't and get play upset. a lot of games. Yeah, no, yeah. You can't get, be upset. So Kentucky in this in 1992, this was, they were the number two seed in the East region. So it wasn't like, you know, this was a 1-9 matchup or, you know, this was a, Kentucky was like this Cinderella that was coming through. But they were definitely the underdog. They were 26-6 and six that year. They won the SEC regular season and they won the tournament. But it just really wasn't an overly impressive resume. You know, they had a few solid wins, but a lot of bad losses. I mean, it was really a a team that punched high above its weight, really, really overachieved. Like we mentioned, you look at the guys out on the floor. I mean, John Pelfrey, John, yeah, John Pelfrey and Richie Farmer. Like these guys who have no right being on on a Kentucky basketball team, but because of what had happened, that all of a sudden found themselves playing consistent minutes. And I think it's a testament to Patino, to these players, and to Jamal Mashburn, who was the only player on this roster that played in the NBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> None of the other guys sniffed the NBA, mm-hmm. even close, got drafted even. Like, none of them played in the NBA. That Patino and Mashburn were able to take this group of, like, your, your YMCA players, basically, and turn them into a national contender. I mean, they had to have been, like, the walk-ons. yeah. Basically, the, the kids that like they they were OK players in high school. They were probably local and 
you know, they walked onto the basketball team and, you know, every team now has those players that are walk-ons that just get in at the end of blowout games and the entire student section cheers for them just to, you know, make a bucket. I mean, there wasn't a player on this Kentucky team that played in this game that was over the height of 6'8". Like, they, they, were, they just, there, were, there was no one. And that was Mashburn was 6'8". He was the tallest player that played in the game. And so they were, they were the number two seed. They'd won a bunch of games. They won the SEC and all these things. But it was clear going in that they were the underdog, mm-hmm. that they were you know, punching above their weight. They were, they were trying to, to, to quarrel with Duke and really had no business being there or being in a close game. Coming in, Will, we've got the enigma of Vern Lundquist calling the game. <laughs> I was stunned when I saw that it was Vern Lundquist, who now call, calls college football games on CBS. Who used to. Or, I, he's retired now. Yeah, he, But he still calls the Masters, and okay. I think he still calls basketball games, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. But the reason I say he's enigma is because sometimes you, you can't tell the story of college athletics without him. Mm-hmm. You can't. He, he's been involved in too many big things like this. But you listen to him, even this game, which was, you know, 17 years ago. He's a much younger man. He's just not very good. <laughs> like, he's, he's not just not a great play by play voice. Exactly. <laughs> like, he just, it feels like at times he's struggling to know what's happening. Like, I don't know. Like, he'll say things every once in a while that make you think that he's not watching, really. But uh, nonetheless, he was the play by play voice of this game. And then on the color was Len Elmore. Getting into the game, the first half starts. So Kentucky opens up playing this 2-3 zone. The game starts with a Christian Leitner turnover and then a quick transition three by John Pelfrey. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty early on that something started to happen in the game that ended up playing a bigger role later, which was that Kentucky started to get in foul trouble from the first possession. Mm-hmm. Pelfrey hits that three, and then the next possession, Jamal Mashburn picks up his first foul. And that ends up playing a really big role eventually we'll talk about it obviously how things play out down the stretch and not that soon after John Pelfrey also starts getting into foul trouble he actually got his second foul with 15 minutes left in the first half and took a seat so I've got to interject here about John Pelfrey who when he picks up that second foul Vern Lundquist refers to him as the emotional leader of that team (laughs) and immediately on cue as he calls him the emotional leader of that team, the camera pans over to him, standing on the sideline. He has not yet sat down on the bench, having checked out of the game after picking up his second foul. And you can read his lips clear as day as he screams at the official, that's bullshit. <laughs> proving proving his that worth he is indeed. as the emotional leader of this Kentucky basketball team. So Pelfrey goes out with 15 minutes left in the first half, and then on the next play, you get a Leitner dunk, and then another on a fast break, the very next possession. So uh, Pelfrey, look, his, his, his numbers that season aren't great. He was their second-leading scorer. Their second-leading scorer, but it was he had 12 points a game, four rebounds, four mm-hmm. assists. I mean, he was a pretty well-rounded player, but wasn't dynamic or elite at anything, it didn't seem like. But him going out of that game in the first half certainly changed the game plan changed momentum. It seemed like he was going to be in some way a defender, a primary defender on Christian Leitner, who the second he went out of the game, it just seemed like things were opening up a little bit more for Duke. Leitner slams the ball through the basket and yells as he does it, and the microphone picks up part of his scream. And let me just say, 
there are a few things that are greater to hear in a basketball game than a man screaming as he dunks the basketball. <laughs> that true. can only be trumped by the swish sound of the net. That's true. So I have noted here that the game, especially in the first half, was playing at a really fast tempo. You know, Bobby Hurley was getting the ball. He was pushing the ball at every opportunity. You know, he was obviously the starting point guard of this team. He didn't sit a minute this entire game, if I'm not mistaken. Now, side note on Bobby Hurley. This man has to have the most punchable face in college basketball. I, I think I would have hated him more than I hated Lehner. I might have, too. Although, Lehner does something later in the game that proves how, <laughs> hate, how hated he is. But Bobby Hurley, the best way that I can possibly describe him, for all you that have played basketball, think back to when you were in fourth grade and you played in your local AAU tournament, and there was a kid on the other team that every time a foul was called on him, he turned to the sideline and looked at his dad with his palms to the sky. <laughs> that is the way that Bobby Hurley looks all the time. He looks like the kid that's protesting to his father on the sideline every time he gets a foul called on him. So I have also noted that this, this, at this point in the game, probably with 12 minutes left, is the first time that Grant Hill enters the game. Grant Hill sporting a Hall of Fame mustache. Yes, definitely. And he, you know, he's a, is a, his is a name that I've heard come up often when... I hear NBA guys talk about players who whose careers would have been so much more yeah. than the, what they than they were without the injuries. And he played 18 seasons and made the Hall of Fame. But you're right. I mean, I think at this point in time, people looked at him like he could be Mike. He could be Michael Jordan. Yes. That's what that's how they thought of him. And there are flashes and he didn't have his best game in this game, but there are flashes of it where you can see just the athleticism and the grace that he played with that was clear that he was, you know, the most athletically talented person on the floor by far. And Mashburn was also very talented, but Hill could do things that nobody else could. He catches a midcourt lob somewhere in the first half and lays it up into the um, into the basket that just takes the whole crowd by surprise, something that just wasn't seen back then. And this was his freshman season, if I'm not mistaken, and he was the third leading scorer on the team. I mean, he was the sixth man, was the first guy off the bench, like I just mentioned, and was the third leading scorer on the team. He averaged 14 points a game, which I think, you know, if obviously if this was today and he was probably a marquee recruit, I imagine, you know, he'd have been starting for whoever, whatever team he was playing for. But because Duke was senior-laden and had players, juniors and seniors, he was the first man off the bench. But I, he definitely thrived in that role, and he played more minutes than Antonio Lang, who was the starter at his position. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like a Manu Ginobili sort of thing where he's, yes, he's the first guy off the bench, but he's actually the guy. He's actually, you know, when you need your five best out on the floor, he's out there, not Michael Finley. Okay, so Leitner is, I have noted that he hit this this crazy turnaround jump shot when he was getting triple teamed mm -hmm. kind of yeah, early yep, on. Yep. He, look, I, I looked at the box score to this game before we, I started watching it. Because I like to do that because I like to know what to look for in the game. And let's let's not talk about it now. Okay. Because there's there's an incredible feat, feat by Christian Leitner in this game. Mm -hmm. But what I was looking for was for him to really jump off the screen mm -hmm. when I looked at the, uh, at the box score. I was expecting him to razzle and dazzle and 
score and and just pop off the screen yep. basically and he doesn't really he doesn't really he does it within the flow of the game which does that make it more or less impressive probably more because that's exactly the way that duke played then and now yeah but he hits this insane sort of tr- he's getting triple teamed like a turnaround jump shot it's a literal triple team yeah he's kind of like a turnaround jumper kind of in the middle of the key a really nice shot now let's take a second i want to talk about sean woods who was a starting point guard for Kentucky at the time. So Bobby Hurley, like you mentioned, he, he's like this little brat mm-hmm. running around out there, but he's, a, he's great. Yeah, he's He good. was a second-team All-American twice um, during his time at Duke, was one of the leading scorers on the team, the leading assist man. He averaged 7.6 assists, which now is difficult to do in college. Mm-hmm. I, back then it was kind of unheard of, but I mean – Seems like there's always one point guard in the country that's really good at assists. This last season, it was Ja Morant. Um, and it was clearly Hurley this year. I mean, he was by far the best passer in the country. And so com- that combined with the fact that Duke was this juggernaut. Mm-hmm. At this point, it had been the three straight Final Fours, had, were the defending national champion. Sean Woods went at Bobby Hurley fearlessly in yeah. this game. I mean, Sean. I mean, we're not talking about Sean Woods being one of the best players in the country either. I mean, like Sean Woods was a six-two guard who averaged seven points and two rebounds a game. Like, of all the guys who started for this team, he was probably the fifth guy. Like he he was not a name that you needed to know going into this game, but he went at Bobby Hurley in this game. He was constantly harassing him up and down the floor. And what that was leading to was Kentucky was getting open threes, and they were making them. Yep, They were hot in the first six minutes of the game. They hit four threes, which is, that's 2019 stuff. And Farmer gets it back and finds Feldhouse. Mashburn. Martinez. Four three-point baskets for Kentucky. They were, they were raining from three, and as, as they had kind of gotten hot hitting threes early, the announcers do mention that Kentucky is known as a three-point shooting team. However, although they were known as a three-point shooting team, they only shot 15 in the game before this. Now, from last year, uh, this would have been 2018, Auburn, who made the Final Four, shot 40 a game. So Kentucky, <laughs> being known as a three-point shooting team that shot 15 or so a game, Back in 1992, that number has now ballooned up to 40 per game, which Auburn shot last year, and Duke happened to shoot 38 last year. So <laughs> That's pretty wild. Signs of the times right there, if you will. And they shot 22 in this game. Okay. Kentucky did. Attempted 22 three-pointers. How many did they make? 12. So they shot a really good yeah. percentage. Should have shot more. And they were, and that's exactly, looking at things, why they are the way they are in college basketball today, it's that. Mm-hmm. It's that they were getting open shots and making them. And at that point, it's, you know, what is often said is that it's simple math, right? Threes are worth more than twos. Mm-hmm. And so if this game's played today, they probably shoot 43s in this game. And the, the, their personnel lent itself to that, mm-hmm. I think. They didn't have dynamic slashers, guys that could get to the rim or were athletic and could break it down a guy one-on-one. But they did have guys that could, you know, tall white guys that yeah. could stand in the corner and make threes. And that's what they did early on. Yeah. Now, I've, I'm not a big Rick Pitino fan, if you didn't catch that earlier. But his coaching genius does show through in a game like this because – 
You have Mike Krzyzewski on the other side, who's got all-world players littered throughout his roster. <clears throat> Patino's got Jamal Mashburn, and that's it. But knowing that he's limited in the talent that he has on his roster, he spreads the floor, he has guys shoot threes, and then he harasses you on the defensive end with a full-court press. I mean, he he does gimmicky things. And they worked, and they it really bothered Duke. And so as far as the coaching performance goes in this game, I, I really kind of give the edge to Patino because he made adjustments that really really bothered Duke and affected the way that they played and and really controlled the pace and the flow of the game for the entire 40 minutes and overtime. And I feel like Krzyzewski, while also a great coach, probably the greatest college basketball coach of all time, he didn't have to deal with those types of constraints. He really just had to, you know, kind of manage the substitutions and whatnot and let his talented players make plays. You and I are going to disagree on that. <clears throat> okay. And there will be there will be a time later on when we'll have that conversation. Okay, that's good. Because I actually tend to think that while he definitely the team itself overachieved and uh-huh. Patino has a lot to do with that, in this game specifically, I think there are a lot of things that he did that you could point the finger at okay. and say what the heck are you doing? Okay. And we'll talk about those later. Good. Like I mentioned before and it kind of continued throughout the whole entire game, really. There was just like this frantic pace. And that was largely due in, in part because Kentucky was really pressing high up the floor. Yep. And it you could tell that it took probably 10 minutes for Bobby Hurley and the rest of Duke to kind of get comfortable with being pressed that way, mm-hmm. being harassed the whole way up and down the floor. And it's evidenced in that Duke had only trailed once by double digits this entire season, as noted by Vern Lundquist in, in the, during the broadcast. Yep. In the first six minutes, they were down by ten points. Now, in that, in that, when Lundquist mentions that, it was at Clemson, and Duke came back and won the game. Right. So I thought that was just an interesting. I, I also noted that that was an interesting fact. But yeah, Kentucky so they, jumps on them. So they were down ten early, and Duke didn't take a lead until there were eleven minutes left in the first half after a Bobby Hurley three in transition. Now, here's another interesting thing: is the announcers early on kept suggesting that Kentucky's game plan was to let Hurley shoot because he was more dangerous as a drive-and-dish guard than a shooter. And whether or not that was Patino's strategy, I don't really know. But Hurley was shooting, and he was making them. He was them. making them. And so if that was the strategy, then it did not pan out at all, because Hurley was making him pay from deep. So then we get a Bobby Hur- Hurley half-court alley-oop to Grant Hill that puts Duke up 27-22. And then on the other end, a Sean Woods layup ends what was a 15-2 Duke run. Here's Hurley. Grant Hill from Bobby Hurley. No other sport compares to basketball in the sense that basketball is 100% a game of runs. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that was clear in this game. And, and if you watch an NBA game today, a college basketball game today, you'll see that. Teams go on, you know, 10 to 2, you know, 15 to 4 runs that sway the score of the game. I remember there was a there was a college basketball video game. I guess it would, it, would have been, it would have been called NCAA March Madness 2004. Mm-hmm. And there was a momentum meter in that game. So if you made, I mean, it was pretty much the equivalent of like the, the arcade game where your guy caught fire. But if, you're, if your momentum meter filled all the way up, then you could literally shoot it from half court and you would not miss. You were unbeatable. <laughs> 
Now, that's maybe unrealistic, but basketball is very much like that, especially when you're playing in front of an energetic crowd, which this was a great crowd, uh, played in the Spectrum, which sadly no longer exists. So Duke's up 31-27 with nine minutes left in in the first half. And John Pelfrey finally comes back into the game. John, that's B.S. Pelfrey. So he'd been out for six minutes of game time, um, which is a lot. And he's got two fouls already, and he's their second best player. You know, the Kentucky played that entire, most of that first half without their second best player. And Mashburn was doing his thing and was scoring and had a really good game. But Pelfrey, I mean, he's going to go down in our books forever (laughs) as the emotional leader of Kentucky. (laughs) They needed him out there. And they were a different team when he was out there. I, could, I mean, it, it was a difference in the, the morale and the mentality of the team when he was out there and when he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Duke's a great team at this point. They're not forcing the ball into Leitner if he's not open. Um, and then Grant Hill and, and Bobby Hurley and Thomas Hill are just making their shots, basically. The, the keys to the game that I have noted so far is that Duke was just so much of a better rebounding team. You alluded to the fact earlier that Kentucky, I guess, didn't have anyone over six foot eight. Well, that clearly showed in the rebounding statistics. And there's little more, there, there's little of anything in sports that is more backbreaking than giving up an offensive rebound. I swear there is nothing more frustrating than cheering for a basketball team and watching the opponent offensive rebound. It is painful. Uh, the other stat that I had that was huge was that Duke had, at this point in time, late in the first half, an 11 to 1 free throw advantage. Also a nod to the foul trouble that Kentucky was in from the get-go. But Duke was getting to the line, and they were making the free throws. Rebounding, like if you watch a a basketball, like you watch your favorite basketball team, and they just can't rebound, it's akin to watching your favorite football team, and they can't stop the run. (laughs) Like every time the opposing team runs the ball, they get seven, eight, ten yards. That's like what it's like watching a, a basketball team not be able to rebound. Mm-hmm. It's so a lack of control. And if you could just change this one thing about the game, it could be a completely different game. Mm-hmm. But you can't change this one thing. And I mean, it was just sheer size. It felt like more than anything. And the fact that Kentucky was playing at this pace where they were just getting up and down and shooting threes, and you know, no one was down. It was it was very 2019 esque the way they were playing. Mm-hmm. So bounce pass inside from Hurley to Christian Leitner, layup makes it 35-29 to 29 with six minutes left. And with that bucket, Leitner became the all-time leading scorer in NCAA tournament history, a record he still holds like we talked about will never be broken probably. And at that point, he's, he's got 10 points in the game, but I, I noted that it's quiet. You know, he, it's quiet. He's quietly scoring. Transition spectacular, dunks, yeah. Just making layups, rebounding, doing his thing. And like I mentioned, I was really looking for him to pop off the screen. Be like, wow, he's the best player on the floor. Mm-hmm. And he really wasn't, I didn't get that vibe. You know, and maybe he was this just is why he didn't job. succeed in the NBA. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but this is what I think is so frustrating a lot of the time about fans of, uh, for fans of college sports, is the best players often are not the best players in the pros. I mean, for the longest time, the Heisman Trophy winner would be like a sixth round pick in the NFL draft. But a lot of the time, the guys that are the best in college, they, they're, skill set just doesn't translate or they don't have the physical ability i mean just take a look at in this game christian leitner the all-world everything flops in the nba essentially and grant hill who has a modest 11 points i think in this game goes on to play 18 years and be a hall of famer um and hill you could see he did pop in like that half that half court alley-oop and and maybe it's that it factor if you will that you know can predict professional success so with 
John Pelfrey being out of the game mostly during the first half, like I mentioned before, it was really Sean Woods who kept Kentucky in it and picked up the scoring slack. He had 10 points in the first half, or at this point in the first half, which was with about five minutes left. A great Christian Leitner pass puts Duke up seven to Grant Hill. He had 11 points at this point in the game. Um, and Duke is kind of starting to slash the zone a little bit. And they just continue to push the pace at every opportunity. But again and again, Sean Woods and Jamal Mashburn just kept coming up for, for Kentucky to keep them close. Duke was shooting 72%. Near the end of the first half, they were shooting 72%. They, they had the best field goal percentage in the country. But even 72% is gaudy. And, and Kentucky was 6 for 11 from 3, and that was keeping them in the game. They only attempted 3 free throws, like you mentioned. And with that, that hot three-point shooting and there's these players that continue to come and come and come, Duke was able to cut, or Kentucky rather, was able to cut the lead to one with under a minute left. But Duke was able to take a five-point lead into half. Um, little halftime box score. Mashburn had 11 points, four rebounds. Leitner had 10 and three. Grant Hill was the leading scorer for Duke, who had 11 points. And Kentucky had 11 turnovers at this point in the game. So Grant Hill finishes the game with 11 points. So he doesn't score in the second half at all, which is interesting. That is interesting because he was hot and he was a dynamic sort of playmaker in the first half and, and really went quiet. And the, the announcers mentioned that several times throughout. Although there was a guy on Duke named Thomas Hill, mm. who I was wondering if he was like Grant Hill's brother or something. He is not. <laughs> but Thomas Hill, like, he plays better than Grant Hill in this game. He, he finishes with 19 to Grant Hill's 11. Um I don't know how much more we'll talk about Thomas Hill, but I just thought it was interesting that Duke had two guys that looked similar, similar builds, both named Hill, who could shoot the ball well. So as we get into the second half, I, I don't remember who the sideline reporter was for the game, but whoever it was had interviewed Rick Pitino and, and asked him about the press that they had put on, and he said, if our press doesn't work, we won't win, Yep, was the direct quote as reported by by the sideline reporter. And... I'm not sure that I really agreed with that. I didn't think about whether or not I agreed with it, but I wrote that exact quote down just because that was bold yeah. to say. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I mean, it illustrates the principle that he believed in. I mean, to him, in his mind, that was the difference in the game, which which was really interesting to me. I just thought it was interesting. But I think what I think is interesting about the quote is that he says, if our press doesn't work, mm -hmm. meaning what I get from that is he's not sure if it's going to work. Yeah. He's kind of just like, this is our best chance to win. And, and it again, may it's have like a been. gimmick. It's a gimmicky thing. It may have been, it might not have been, but Duke was dominating in transition. And the reason that they were doing that was because they were trying to press so high up the floor. Once Bobby Hurley got comfortable with the press, it was a simple, you know, run down there, bounce past whoever in the lane or who's running the floor to lane and the layup, and that was it. I mean, it, it is a feast or famine strategy, and Kentucky does feast, and they do famine in this game mm. because Duke turned the ball over a lot. I mean, they had about twice the number of turnovers that Kentucky did. There's a particular stretch that we'll get to here shortly where the press is incredibly effective. So, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm not as... I'm not in such disagreement with that statement as you are, but I will absolutely acknowledge that it's a feast or famine strategy, and they did see that, the effects of that. So the half starts with Bobby Hurley, first possession, knocking down a three. Mm -hmm. um, Duke's up 54-48 in a few minutes, and then Kimel Martinez, the starting center, for Kentucky, picks up his fourth foul. If you're listening moment. right now, Google a picture of Kimel Martinez. <laughs> 
<laughs> you won't regret it. <laughs> you will not regret it. Uh, he's, I mean, it's a, just your classic looking like <laughs> scrub basketball player. I he looks know. like someone that would play a basketball player in a movie in this time yes. rather than an actual basketball player. He's got like the flowing hair and then like a little bit of a mustache going on as well. But he was the primary defender on Christian Leitner the entire game. He and Pelfrey, who then Pelfrey also picks up his fourth foul just a few minutes later. That's BS! <laughs> so they're deep in foul trouble at this point. Pelfrey's got four. I mean, you only get five in college, and here we are early on in the second half, and he's going to have to sit the most of the half, really, um, with his fourth foul, and as well as Himel Martinez, the two guys tasked with slowing down Christian Leitner. Duke goes up 59 51 with 14 minutes left in the second half. Okay, now let me read you what I wrote right here. I'm just going to read it word for word because you've alluded to this guy several times already. Leitner hits corner three while some guy named Sean Woods is trying to keep Kentucky in it (laughs) (laughs) single-handedly. Yeah, I mean, he was. That was really what it was. He was the only person that could break down anybody on Duke. One-on-one, go and get a layup, you know, get into the middle of the zone, get a good shot. And then, as you mentioned before, we meant, we talked a little bit about the rebounds before. This is the point that I haven't noted, is that Duke was just dominating the boards. It was 31 to 19 rebounds at the end of the game. So Leitner makes that first three, which I also realized was probably the first shot that he took from outside the key. When he took that, I was like, oh, man, he can hit the three, too. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was kind of demoralizing, because mm-hmm. at this point, he had pretty much done everything but that. So that was a big, this is a big momentum portion of the game for Duke. Mm-hmm. Leitner hits this three. They're getting easy buckets. They're breaking the, the Kentucky press with ease. And then Himel Martinez fouls out with 10 minutes left in the game. Mm-hmm. And then Duke takes a 12-point lead after a Bobby Hurley three. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you're watching the game. If you're watching it live, you're thinking, okay, Duke's going to do Duke. This is going to be a blowout. They're going to win by 20. You know, They're going to coast to an easy win. You've seen it a million times in sports. This happens all the time where – you know, a team's playing a sort of scrappy underdog. They hang around, they hang around, they hang around, and then, you know, the DNA of the better team just comes out and they manhandle the team and do their take care of their business and win the game going away and just coast. And that was what it certainly felt like was going to happen at this point. And then I think this is the, the, the portion of the game that you were referring to earlier when you were talking about when we were talking about the press. Yeah, this is the best part of the game. So do you have the breakdown think, right there? I have the breakdown. So why don't you break it down? Play by play because Duke goes from being up twelve to up four in thirty seconds. Yes, it's, and it was wild. So there's ten minutes left, and you get a Dale Brown layup for Kentucky, followed by a steal off the inbounds pass with the which press. you don't see. Mm-mm. It like the the the, the I mean, game like you, broadcast had cut away to the, the player yeah. running down the floor, and then all of a sudden Mashburn's shooting a three. Yeah, and Mashburn knocks down a three. Timeout, Duke. Duke comes out of the timeout, and Kentucky proceeds to get another steal immediately, <laughs> followed up by another Jamal Mashburn three, and all of a sudden it's a four-point game. Try to receive, turn, and go in an effort to really attack the Kentucky pressure, but he doesn't meet the ball. And they've got another turnover for three. It's a four-point game. If Kentucky were to win this game, I mean, I mean, Jamal Mashburn already is gonna is in Kentucky lore mm-hmm. as being a great player. Jersey's hanging in the rafters. But if they go on to win this game, this is an absolutely legend-making series of events yes. for Jamal Mashburn. 
the two shots came from the same spot on the floor, and they were nothing but net. Nothing but net. I mean, he was just locked in, knocking down shots. And then even after that, I have noted that he had another bucket on the next possession. So Duke went down, did whatever. They, uh, well, did. Hurley hit a three. Okay. So you get a Bobby, a Bobby Hurley three, and then Mashburn hits a turnaround two to give him 21 points and eight rebounds. And eight straight points. So people are just... Knocking down shots everywhere Left and right. at this point yes. in the game. I mean, both both player or both teams rather are just shooting every shot and making it. I mean, it, it was just shot making at its highest quality. Mm-hmm. You know, guys that were just making plays, taking their open shots, knocking them down in a you know in an NCAA tournament game. Which this is the part of the game where things really elevated the atmosphere, the, the intensity. Raised. Yes, yeah. and it was like okay, do, Kentucky's not going away. Yeah. You know, they're they're hanging around. They're going to be here till the end of the game. Mm-hmm. This wasn't going to be a runaway, you know, e coast to an easy victory for Duke. This was going to be a dogfight until, you know, the last seconds of the game. So this at this point in the game is when we get this this silly little interaction between Christian Leitner and some guy, some inconsequential player on Kentucky named <laughs> Aminu Timberlake. So I watched a couple documentaries in preparation for this podcast, mm-hmm. both of which had Christian Leitner in it, and he talks about this play. And in both documentaries, he said that he felt like Aminu Timberlake kind of pushed him in the back in a previous possession on a rebound, probably, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of came in too hard, pushed him in the back, and he kind of stumbled into like the the stand, the hoop stand, and that he kind of saw his name as he was running back and kind of took a mental note. You know, of who that was. And then, so we get into this point in the game. Leitner's coming. He goes and is fouled shooting a layup. And Aminu ends up on the ground, laying flat on his back. And Leitner is kind of stumbling backwards. And and then clearly... Takes an extra step. Obviously takes an extra step and steps right on his chest. And it was obvious it was on purpose. He gives a a little little oomph. It was like a kick. Yeah. It was like a little stomp. I mean, it wasn't like he was taking a a natural step. It was clear he was trying to just give a little stomp on his chest. Uh And everyone freaked out. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Leitner calls for it. There's a double on Leitner. And Leitner kicked it. There's a technical on Christian Leitner. Stepped right in his chest. And no one freaked out more than Vern Lundquist. <laughs> I have this I have this interaction between Len Elmore and Vern Lundquist wrote it because I thought it was so funny. Like, Elmore asks kind of maybe a, a little bit of a rhetorical question, says, I don't know if he did it on purpose. And Lundquist just responds in a stern, confident voice, yeah, he did. <laughs> Pretty darn nasty situation. I don't know if he did it on purpose or not. Yeah, he did. It's like every once in a while, an announcer will have a moment where their their bias will come out a little bit. Like if they hate a certain team or player, it'll just be seen. And it was so obvious in that moment that Vern Lundquist couldn't stand Christian Leitner either. Yeah. He ended up getting, I believe, a tech, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. or a flagrant maybe shot free throws. Look, this is this was nothing, in my opinion. Did he do it on purpose? Yes. yes. He absolutely did it on purpose. And it's it, it was a clear demonstration of why everyone hated him. Yeah. And if you hated him before that play, you hated him even more yep. after. Yep. And it was just like, you know, a clear example. This is exactly why everyone hates this guy. But this was nothing. Like, this was 
I listened to con- like Kentucky guys talk about this after the fact, talking about how this was like the biggest play of the game. He should have been thrown out and things like that. I'm like, relax. Like he, he barely stepped on the guy, just sent him a little love tap, a little message. I don't know. And whatever they got the free throw, they called the tech on him. Like what else do you want? It's, people do much more than that in the NBA today and don't get thrown out. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, this was in the era of the bad boy Detroit Pistons for crying out loud. Yeah. I hate to think what these people would have thought if they turned on the television and watched Bill Lambeer <laughs> slam <laughs> yeah, Larry Bird. It would have been explicit. Now, something that I do think is very significant about this event, though, is how each team reacted to that. And it started right after that because each team had free throws and Kentucky missed one and Leitner knocked them both down. And then Leitner and Bobby Hurley force a steal, and they get a bucket in transition right after that. And so I felt like, you know, Duke had kind of embraced the their role. They as knew the what Leitner was, right? This was and, nothing. And they and they just rallied around him. And so when he when his true colors show, Duke rallies around him, and they used it as momentum to propel a little bit of a run. And I felt like that was important in the game, whereas Kentucky in that moment kind of froze. So Duke went up ten at that. You know, after that little series that you're talking about with about seven minutes left and Jamal Mashburn continued to hang around and make shots Mm -hmm. and was able to get it down to a five point lead in the next minute. So with six minutes left in the game, Duke is Duke's up five. So Brian Davis misses two free throws and then Sean Woods, my boy, like I he was the star of the game. I mean, he and Mashburn for Kentucky anyway, were the stars of the game. He pick, he drills a three on the next possession to, to tie it up at 81 after those Brian Davis missed free throws. Obviously, there were other things that happened between, you know, Duke going up five. Kentucky Press gets their own players in foul trouble, I have it noted at this point. Jamil Martinez is out. Pelfrey's got four. Dale Brown has four. And Sean Woods has four. Yeah. It, so they're, they're really towing a tight line at this point. But even with those things, Kentucky takes the lead. With three minutes left in this game, I mean, Duke ended up tying the next possession, but it was still like this momentum swinging back and forth and going on runs and people making shots. And Kentucky is, you know, they're up two with two minutes left in the game. Like, it's a very real possibility at this point that Duke could lose this game to this team that has really, talent-wise, has no business being on the same floor as them. I had written down at this point that Kentucky was so hot from three that this building felt like it was Oracle Arena um, when Steph is going off. Because anytime the ball would go up, you would get this like collective gasp like of excitement of 15,000 people that you can hear. And it contributes to a great atmosphere. I just thought that was awesome. So Leitner gets mauled in the key at this point with about two minutes left, hits two free throws to tie it up. The next possession, a Thomas Hill floater puts Duke up by two with under a minute. So now we're getting in to really... Uh, you know, every possession, really, from from the time that Kentucky was up two with a couple minutes left, then it's like every possession every stress possession matters. You got to make good decisions, get good shots. Now, at this moment, I feel like it's a good time to take a break in a little bit of a lighthearted moment because okay. some things, although we like to recognize the way that sports change over the years, some things never change. And there was a graphic that came up on the screen that showed the schedule for the next games the following day, and I just happened to note that there was a tip-off between two teams playing the next day at 1.42 p.m. And what never changes is those odd times of March Madness. I feel like there's <clears throat> there's always a game that tips off, for example, on Thursday at 2.37 p.m. Exactly. And so this to goes minute. to the minute. 
And so uh, even in 1992, we had two-the-minute tip-offs like this at 1.42 p.m. So the next sequence of events is interesting, to say the least. So these two guys who, I mean, you couldn't tell these guys from Adam. Darren Feldhaus makes a layup off a John Pelfrey miss to tie the game. I mean, if you're if you're Googling a picture of Himel Martinez, you might as well Google a picture of Darren Feldhaus. I mean, this guy, he looks like a CPA. Like, I don't, what working, team is he, he on? Might I honestly, be one. What team is he on? I don't know. <laughs> He's Duke. He's, okay, he, or he's no, a, sorry. He's a Kentucky he's player. Like, okay. Um, and you look up a picture of him, and you you like. He could you. He won't look any different from like. The account that six five seats up next to you at work. Was like, the, oh. he, that's exactly what these guys like. This is not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration. This is literally these guys look like scrubs. So we're we're under like thirty seconds left in the game at this point. Duke's gonna have the last shot of regulation. So if you have the last shot in regulation, your coach K, who are you getting the ball to? I'm Christian Lehner. And there was no obvious effort to get him the ball. No. I mean, it, like in fact, he kind of just stood down there. And and Hurley passes it back and forth, I think, with Grant Hill up at the top of the key. Mm-hmm. And it was like neither of them wanted the ball. They kept just passing it back to the other guy. What ends up happening is Hurley kind of runs in there, slashes through there, and takes a little floater that misses. Now Kentucky gets the offensive rebound, and there's some confusion between the player and the coach and yeah. Coach Patino that whether to push and try and get a shot or to call a timeout. And he he the guy traveled. <laughs> he trips. he really traveled. Yeah, uh, wasn't called. Kentucky ended up getting the the ball. Leitner, I noted at this point, Leitner was guarding the inbounds pass. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about With this. in parentheses, take note, Rick Patino. Um, which leads to nothing. The, okay, only the, the, way, the way that he's guarding the inbounds pass is like there's a rule. I don't know when this rule was implemented, but there's a rule that you have to stand, I think, three feet back from the inbounds pass. Leitner's size 12 and a half shoes or whatever they were had to have been three inches over the out of bounds line. (laughs) And then when uh, he's like timing the five second call. Uh And so as soon as it gets to 4.5 seconds, he jumps not only as high as he can, but as far as he can towards the opposing player. And he had to have landed three yards out of bounds. I don't know how they didn't call a violation on him. So that leads to nothing. But the only no- like the only the only notable part of that last shot of regulation that Kentucky had was that Leitner was guarding the inbounds pass. Overtime starts. Now, something that I thought about as I was going in to start watching overtime, overtime a lot of times is settled in the first couple minutes of the yes. yeah. More often than not, I would say whoever comes out hot in overtime, ready to 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 bury the other team, usually wins the game. And the team that did that was Kentucky. Mm-hmm. They came out and started with a mass. Mashburn missed a three. Hurley then missed on the other end. And Pelfrey came back and made a three. Mm-hmm. And then an offensive foul by Brian Davis of Duke on the other end. A charge on the next possession. Charges, like, those are momentum plays. Yep. And Brian Davis had fouled out, who was a starter. So now Kentucky's up three. One of their Duke starters out of the game. And they have the ball. And the play, the maybe the biggest non-Leitner play of the game was the very next play, which was a Thomas Hill steal that led to a Bobby Hurley three that tied the game. So Hurley missed a three and then got it back and just shot it from the exact yes. same spot and made yes. it. Yeah. 
I think on that play, if you're Kentucky and you can be responsible with the ball and get a even a good shot or better, a made shot, you may have a chance to bury Duke there. Mm-hmm. And Duke had championship DNA. They had great players all across you know, the court, so who knows what would have happened. But like I said, more often than not, these overtimes, if you can make the other team clinch up, then you have a great chance to bury them. And Kentucky had a chance to bury them. A careless turnover led to a three-pointer that tied the game. Duke was kind of on the ropes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pelfrey made a layup the next possession to put Kentucky back on top. But it, there was a sense of a missed opportunity there by Kentucky. Then Jamal Mashburn picked up his fourth foul, which put Christian Leitner at the line for two free throws, makes both. So the game's tied at 98 with 50 seconds left. So overtime's going quick here. Leitner made a tough one-handed shot as the shot clock expired. It was, I mean, it was lucky. It was lucky. He, I mean, he banked it, it in. Yeah, I mean, like, it was kind of a, the shot clock's running down. I'm gonna, I mean, I, I think got, it was I an intentional bank, there. but yeah. But it was definitely it was definitely fortunate to make that shot. Then Put Mashburn comes back, puts Kentucky up one with a baseline and one. Big time play. Like, give like, me the Carlos Boozer and one! <laughs> I mean, he was, Mashburn was amazing. He was great in this game, and I don't remember him doing a lot in the NBA, but he, of all the players on in this game, like I like I said, I was expecting Leitner to kind of pop off the screen and be the guy, be the biggest player in the game. It's not he. It, he wasn't. Mashburn was. He was just so tough. Yeah. And I, you. So you alluded to to the NBA, and I had so I had some interesting notes on that. Um, so Mashburn, he was the fourth pick in the NBA draft. He played ten seasons. He made one All Star team in his ninth season. Now, as I kind of read about him, it, it's, it seems like the narrative on him is that he also, similar to Grant Hill, would have had a much longer and more illustrious career if it weren't for knee injuries. However, there is a very interesting statistic that he is one of only five players to average 20 points in their last season. Can you try and guess the other four? Do you want to do this on air? Who were the, la- the people that averaged 20 points in so their there last were five, season? So there are five NBA players that have averaged 20 points in their last season. One of them is Jamal Mashburn. All right, I'll say Carl Malone. Nope. Kareem. Nope. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's one. With the Wizards. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Okay, so Jordan's right. Larry Bird. Jerry West. And Drazen Petrovich. I could have gotten Bird. I probably wouldn't have gotten West, or definitely not Drazen. But I remember Petrovich. Bird had those back injuries. Anyways, I just thought I thought that was interesting. Now, other NBA kind of just summaries of their career. Leitner was the third pick. He played for six teams. He made one All Star game. He averaged eighteen points over over his uh, or he he averaged eighteen points in his All Star season, but twelve over his thirteen year career. Um, Grant Hill obviously had the long eighteen year career. Um, made the Hall of Fame. He had the best NBA career out of any of them. Bobby Hurley was the seventh pick in the NBA draft. He only played six seasons, and really his best season was his rookie year, averaging seven and six. But back to the game. So Leitner makes that tough one-hander that was this lucky shot that puts Duke up. You get Mashburn with the and-one tough bucket on the other end to put Kentucky back up one, and there are 20 seconds left in the game. So again, this moment of Duke might lose this game. Mm -hmm. It's a very real possibility. 
Leitner gets fouled again with 15 seconds left and steps up there with ice in his veins and makes both free throws. Okay, now we need to note that this foul was committed by Jamal Mashburn. Which was his fifth foul. Which was his fifth foul, which that is a dagger. Because there's no doubt the ball would be going to him the next No possession. question. I mean, Sean Woods has played a great game, but there's no question who your horse is if you're Kentucky and who the best player on the floor had been for much of this game. It would have been Jamal Mashburn. And so that was detrimental. I also noted on this play, so if you want to if you want to picture this play in your head, this is what I have wrote written about it. Leitner hardened <laughs> Jamal Mashburn. And what I mean by that was is that he was dribbling across the lane and 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 picked up the ball and then just extended his arms as Mashburn tried to swipe down, you know, to swipe the ball away. He had his arms extended what Harden's famous for doing. Every time he drives the lane, he just extends those arms and lets guys try and swipe at the ball, and they just hit his arms, and it's a foul. That's what happened here. It was a good call. It was a foul. It was a cheapy, sure, but like it was it was definitely a foul. It was Harden-esque. That's exactly what he did. He just was dribbling across the lane, picked up his dribble, extended his arms, and as Mashburn went to swipe the ball away because his arms were extended, just came down right on his arms. Um, steps up to the free throw line, makes both free throws. Duke's up one. Kentucky takes a timeout. Now, out of the timeout, in one of these documentaries that I watched, Patino mentioned that what he wanted to do was get the ball in as quickly as possible and then to have John Pelfrey kind of run off a screen and get the ball to him and let him get a shot, basically. Hmm. Whether he was open off the screen or needed to go to the rack or whatever. The plan was to get John Pelfrey the ball. Hmm. Sean Woods gets the ball in the inbounds and goes straight to the rack. <laughs> 7.8 seconds remaining. Woods. Yes! Man. Sean with, Woods says no. With little to no hesitation, puts up a desperate little runner um, that banks in. It puts Kentucky a up A miracle one. shot. Miracle now, shot. Lucky confused. shot as well. Yeah. Weird little, like, hook, like, guy in his face. And then like L- it, when it hits the backboard, the ball is on the way down uh-huh. and still manages to go in. I was mixed up. That was the shot I was thinking of in regulation. Now, in order to get kind of free, he does get a mean screen from John Pelfrey. And it's the type of screen that like if you were on the receiving end of this screen, you would have been pissed at your teammates for not calling it <laughs> because it, like it was a blindside screen. And then I have noted the direct quote from Len Elmore after that shot. He said, quote, look, it went in. Okay. But that was a terrible shot. <laughs> yeah, it was. Because it was. He just floated it up there. It was kind of a prayer, and it just banked in. Now, the and... the over the other thing that we need to mention here about this shot is that it was over a fully outstretched, from the tippy toes to his very fingertips, six foot eleven Christian Leitner. Mm-hmm. That Woods makes this over uh, the face of college basketball in this moment, and so I mean, how fitting would that have been for Kentucky to pull the upset if Sean Woods? were to make this shot over the best player in the country. So Duke calls a timeout, and I can't help but think that Leitner's probably sitting over there thinking that exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I am not going down having my some some no name make a game winner. Posterize me. Yeah. Um so Duke calls a timeout, draws up a play. Now here's an interesting thing about this play. We all know it. But this was a play that Duke had tried earlier in the season when they lost at Wake Forest. They did this exact same thing. Someone was guarding Grant Hill. 
during that Wake Forest game, the, the inbounds pass. Someone was on him. They threw it down there, and in Christian Leitner's direct words, the first time they ran it, Grant Hill threw, quote, a curveball. <laughs> and when you watch it, like, you know, the documentary had a great shot from behind the hoop, and it did. It was kind of one of those passes that kind of drifted towards the sideline, and Christian caught it, but came down and kind of stumbled out of bounds, and that was the end of the game. So didn't they, get a shot up. No, didn't get a shot up. So they had tried this play before, and it had not worked. The only difference between then and this time was no one was guarding the inbounds pass. Mm. And you listen to, you, you hear the reason why, you listen to Patino talk about it, and it's completely understandable. You want a double team Leitner. You take the guy off the inbounds pass and you stick him on Christian Leitner. So you got two guys on him. That makes complete sense. But the ease with which Grant Hill was able to just loft a perfect pass down there. And by the time Leitner... It was like he was Drew Brees. I mean, it it was perfect. And by the time Leitner catches the ball, both of the guys, supposedly, that are supposed to be defending him are behind him. However, that happened. I mean, I I don't know what they... I don't know what they were doing before, you know, when the ball hadn't been inbounded yet. But by the time it got hit to him, both players were behind him. And... I, I have noted, and I, I and I felt pretty confident saying this. The mistake that Patino made was not putting someone on the inbounds pass, and that was probably the last time someone made that mistake. Hmm. I can't recall a time, especially a consequential time, when people have not put guys on the inbounds passer for that reason. Because the ease with which they were able to get the ball down the floor in two seconds and get a good shot. And Grant Hill made that incredible pass. It wasn't a curveball. Leitner high points the ball like a freaking DB. Mm-hmm. Takes one dribble. Knowing, knowing how much time was on yep. the clock, he took one dribble fake. Turnaround jumper at the free throw line. Would not be denied. There's the pass to Leitner. Puts it up. Yes! Turns around, both hands raised up to the sky. People are storming onto the court. Kentucky's guys are crying. And uh, uh, should I save this for my sad award? <laughs> yes, okay. save it. Okay. But, I mean, you think about that. Think about this in its entirety. Christian Leitner, the greatest college basketball player of his era, one of the best ever, mm-hmm. is sitting on the bench thinking, that he, it's possible that he could go down in this game as a loser, as a loser, not only as a loser, but his picture will be the one that's, you know, think about, you know, if he doesn't make this shot, the picture, the, the shot that's going around is the one of him with his hand in Sean Wood's face, not blocking the shot mm-hmm. that's going in. Christian Leitner sitting on the bench, thinking about that, that he at this point is the goat, no matter how well he'd played. Mm-hmm. The shot of him not blocking that shot is going to be the shot that lives in history. And that's stewing in his mind Mm -hmm. and knows that he's going to get one shot. He's going to have one chance to make everything right. And he had to depend on his teammates. He was double teamed. But he knew that he had one chance to make everything right again and bring balance to the game. And he had his one shot. And for a lot of guys... You only get one, mm-hmm. you know, 
he he has like three in the NCAA tournament shots that you can point to that this was amazing. Most none guys, like this. None like this. But most guys only get one shot. And he took his shot. He made it. It's a make or miss league. People say about the NBA, and that's what basketball is. It's a make or miss game. And when it needed to be made, he made it. Now, I'm going to get on my soapbox really quick. Okay. But this is exactly why we do this podcast. <laughs> it is. Because, yeah, oh, sorry. You, do, you didn't know about Sean Woods hitting the shot. No one knows about that, that Sean Woods hit this shot over Leitner seconds before. They don't know about John Pelfrey. They don't know about anything that happened before this game. And maybe this is why this is making more of an impact on me in this episode than any of the others, as you alluded, that this was the first one that we hadn't seen the game until now. But we had seen the replay of Leitner hitting that shot on ESPN. A billion times. A million times. And we didn't know anything that happened before it. And now the next time that we see that replay, because I know that we're not going to see any replay of Jamal Mashburn hitting threes, but the next time that we see that replay of Leitner hitting that shot, we're going to appreciate it so much more because we know everything that came before. In the context of the entire game. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's do a little box score breakdown then. So Bobby Hurley played the entire game, yep. did not sit, had 22 points, 10 assists, did have eight turnovers. Mm-hmm. And I think most of those probably came in the first 10 minutes of the first half when... I know he had four very quickly. Yes, because Kentucky kind of came out and the press really threw him off, really threw Bobby Hurley off. You know, he maybe hadn't seen something like that in a while, but it took him a half of a half to get used to it. So he did have the eight turnovers in the game. Now, interesting note here that Bobby Hurley played every minute of the game. If you look carefully at the box score, nobody else did, but somebody else would have. And Jamal Mashburn played 43 minutes in this game mm, and, just and fouled out couple, yeah. because he also would have would have played the whole entire game. And so, the, I mean, those, you know, as, as great as Leitner was, you know, Hurley and Mashburn really were the engines for their teams. And think about this. This is something that I didn't think about until this moment. He fouls out. Who do you think is on Leitner? <laughs> Definitely Jamal and Mashburn. It, and if he's on him, I don't think there's any way he catches that pass. Yeah, you could be right. He was much more athletic than Christian Leitner was, mm-hmm. and I don't know if there, I don't know if he catches that pass if Jamal Mashburn's out there. Um, speaking of Jamal Mashburn, he went eleven for sixteen in the game, had twenty eight points and ten rebounds. He he played great, eight of twelve from two, three of four from three. He was awesome. Ten rebounds. Of all the of all the people that I enjoyed watching in this game, he was probably the most enjoyable player to watch mm-hmm. because he could shoot the ball. He was big and strong and athletic. And obviously, you know, could dominate a game. He was only a sophomore at the time, yep. which now the best players soft- are freshmen. Yes, but yep. then it was you know a senior. Best players were always thing. seniors. Yeah. yeah, and so here's the sophomore out here taking it to these Dukies. And what was so refreshing about watching Mashburn, and what was so contrasting to him versus Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley, is Mashburn was all about business. He was all ball. There was no nonsense with him, and that's why I loved watching him getting after the Dukies. Now, John Pelfrey was 5 for 7. He had 16 points and and uh, 5 assists. He only played 25 minutes because of foul trouble in this game. And he was uh, he, he may have been a player that played the entire game otherwise as well. Um, him not playing, or I guess him only playing 25 minutes really hurt Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird to say that because they hung in this game for so long against you know an obvious an obviously better team, yep. but they really missed him. He was the emotional leader of the team. 
Now, why don't you walk us, Will, through Christian Leitner's box score? Okay. Christian Leitner attempted 10 field goals in the game. Nine of those were from two. He made all nine. One of those was from three. He made it. He went to the free throw line 10 times. He made 10 free throws. The man did not miss a shot all game. The ball left his hand 20 times, and it went in 20 times. Every single time. That's, that is a feat. That's incredible. I mean, you would expect today uh, the best player on a team to have more than 10 shots. Uh-huh. But to make every shot that he took, no matter what shot it was, it, it, even if it was layups and hook shots and then uh, an occasional jump shot here or there, to, to make every shot you take is astounding. Yeah. Staggering. I, back then, you know, efficiency was a word that would never have been muttered um, in the context of a basketball game. I wonder, you know, for the, for the sports reference people out there, whoever compiles these statistics, if they were to take every basketball game ever played, where would this rank in the most efficient basketball performances of all time? I mean, it, I don't imagine that there could have been yeah, a better one. I, can't I mean, either. he shot 100 percent from from the field. Let me look at this really quick. Yeah, so he he had 31 points, 10 for 10 field goals, um, had seven rebounds, three assists, two steals. It would have been a perfect game were it not for the, the five only, turnovers. Yeah, I was going to say the only part that could have hurt his 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 modern day efficiency rating would be the turnovers. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you're splitting hairs there. I mean, he was as good as you could have possibly imagined that he would be. But even with that, like we mentioned several times throughout the entire podcast, is that he wasn't really dominating. I, mean, I guess that's you could not, say that's maybe yeah. not the right word. I mean, he wasn't like going and getting the ball and taking on his man and like, well, I guess going out and scoring and attacking the game. He was letting the game come to him, taking the opportunities that came, and just being a silent assassin basically i think the best way that we can maybe illustrate this is that he he doesn't miss a shot the entire game and it's not mentioned by the announcers once and it's like i didn't look at the box score before the game like you did i didn't even know that he didn't miss a shot until minutes before we sat down to record this podcast (laughs) so that's the way that he went about it is that it was it was not obvious what he was doing but when you look back at it it's incredible Absolutely. It's championship performance, you know, one that isn't is, is there's no shortage of, of coverage of, you know, legend surrounding this game, this shot, his performance, um, even though he was outplayed, I think, in a lot of ways by a lot of other players on the team. And again, to your point, this is why we do these podcasts is because you think about the game. If you just looked at even the box score, you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, he was a dominant force in this game. Mm-hmm. And while it's hard to dispute a perfect shooting percentage and 31 points and six rebounds, if you watch the game yourself, you're not going to come away thinking that he was dominating the game. Mm -hmm. There were other players that had much more of the ball that took many more shots and, you know. To me, it makes it more impressive. I mean, I I feel like it makes it more impressive rather than less impressive. I mean, here's all the players. These are all the players that took as many or more field goal attempts than Christian Leitner. Jamal Mashburn, Sean Woods, Dale Brown, Bobby Hurley, Thomas Hill, and Grant Hill all shot as many or more times than Christian Leitner. He just knew what his role was. Yeah. All right, you ready to do some awards? I'm ready. All right, uh, let's do good, bad, and sad. I'll do my good first. Okay. 
my good is Sean Woods. <laughs> Your boy. He is my boy because, listen, he averaged seven points and four assists over the course of the entire season. <laughs> and he comes out and drops 21 in this game. Let me look at this. He averaged, yeah, let's see, seven points, two rebounds, and four assists over the course of the season. He came out in this game and delivered 21 points, nine assists, and three steals. I mean, playing way, way out of his, like, I guess you could say comfort zone, way out of his, you know, norm. It was an an anomaly. And he went toe-to-toe with Bobby Hurley the whole night Mm -hmm. and helped manage this Kentucky offense, and and including the big bucket that puts them ahead right before Leitner. And this is the kind of thing that you see happen in sports often. And in our last episode of our podcast, we did the 2015 Super Bowl between the Seahawks and, and the Patriots. And the player, a similar player to that would have been Chris Matthews, the wide receiver for the Seahawks in that game, who hadn't played like more than five snaps all season, maybe. And then all of a sudden Had is no catching these bombs, the catching touchdowns. He's like being targeted in the red zone. Yeah. Like this is what this was. Uh, just a guy who you don't expect to come out and have a big game who absolutely delivered on the biggest stage, you know, on the game that, he knew, especially when Pelfrey went out with foul trouble, he was the one that stepped up and, and carried a lot of that scoring load. So Sean Woods is my good. My good is the stretch uh, with threes by Mashburn and steals off the inbounds pass. I mean, that, that was insanity. And the whole game was filled with incredible shot making. But for Kentucky to take a 12-point deficit and cut it to four in a matter of 30 seconds is unheard of. And it was insane. That was probably the best stretch of the game. Yeah. From that time on, was when the intensity, the moments of the game felt more important. Yeah. And because Kentucky was obviously back in it. And, um, yeah, that was, that was definitely a, a marquee moment of the game. All right, let's do bad. You want me to go first? Yeah, you so go first. my bad is uh, the Leitner, I don't know if you want to call it stomp. stomp. <laughs> it was just I silly. It, I mean, just everything about it, including the reactions, was just bad. And honestly, like, Normally, I think that something like that is actually good in the context of the game because it adds something to it. But I, I really didn't feel like this added anything to the game. It was, it was already as intense as it could have been, and I didn't really feel like there was any bad blood that contributed to that or that kind of came out of that either. It, it was just this weird, ticky tack, stupid thing that happened. All right, my bad. Let's have this discussion then. So my bad was Rick Pitino. Okay. And I thought that he made bad decisions throughout the game. Obviously, none worse than, than choosing to not guard the inbounds pass on the last shot. Yeah. Although, I mean, I'll say that the reason why he didn't is an understandable reason. I get it. You want to put two guys on Leitner? Sure. But the fact that they had to go the length of the floor in two seconds to get a good shot off, if you guard the inbounds pass, there's no way that they can go the, the length of the floor in two seconds and get a, as good of a shot as they ended up getting. Mm-hmm. That's your first bad decision. Now, I think I've kind of come around a little bit on this one throughout talking about the podcast and realizing you know what Kentucky was, what Duke was. I think his decisions made a little bit more sense than I initially thought. Are but you talking about the press? The press, yes, but also just pushing the pushing of the tempo of the game. Okay. You know... What I realized throughout the podcast today is that you maybe didn't want to get into a five-on-five with with Duke. Mm -hmm. You didn't have the horses. You didn't have the athletes to compete. They had Leitner. They had Bobby Hurley. They had Grant Hill. You had Darren Feldhaus. You know, like, I understand that you couldn't get into it. If it was just our guys on their guys, you didn't didn't stand a chance. 
But what ended up happening was you go through the press throughout the game, and what ends up happening is you get John Pelfrey almost fouling out, you get Jamal Mashburn fouling out, you get Jamal Martinez fouling out, and you get John Pelfrey missing crucial a lot of minutes during the game because of this. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they're good calls or bad calls, who's to say? But it's all subjective, right? I mean, refs make good calls, they make bad calls, they make calls both ways. But ultimately, that's what changed the dynamic of the game or what could have changed the game is if maybe you employ the the press in times or in spurts, mm-hmm. but not having your horses out there or them even being out there but playing conservatively, I think, hurt Kentucky ultimately in the end. And now, is there a different way, something else they could have done to win the, to win the game or ha- had it been a better or more competitive game? Probably not. But I think ultimately those decisions, the not guarding of the inbound pass, and then the not being able to manage your team's foul trouble, but instead insisting that they just press and press and play wild sort of throughout the game, um, I think hurt them. And so Patino was my bad. That's fair. So my sad is in the You're same... Bad. You're bad. No, my bad was the stomp. Oh, that's right. Okay. So my sad is in the same moments of jubilation for Duke, and let me tell you, I hate Kentucky basketball as much as anybody. But in this moment, the announcer, and I forget whether it was Lundquist or um, Elmore, says, he comments about the Kentucky seniors and says, those who had nowhere else to go. So these guys that somehow ended up on the Kentucky basketball team, probably you know fulfilling childhood dreams, and not even in those wildest of dreams could they have imagined that they would be playing in an Elite Eight game in the NCAA tournament against Duke and played well. And for the game to end in such heartbreak and their basketball careers to be undoubtedly over because none of these guys were going to make it in the NBA ever. For it to end in that way, that is sad to me. And endings are sad. And that was my sad. It's an interesting point because <clears throat> it's the, every team, especially in college, has guys like that buried yes. at the end of their bench. Uh-huh. And college who, sports everywhere. Yeah, who just somehow are able to sneak in onto the team. And it's a little more obvious. They're probably in, like team managers for a couple of years yeah. or something. It's a little more obvious in basketball because there are only like 12 to 15 guys on the team. In football, there obviously are players like this too. But even in basketball, even if you watch Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina today, there are three or four, you know, chubby white guys just stashed at the end of the bench who are never going to see the floor and, or who just see garbage time minutes. And they don't do anything in practice except like choreograph the celebrations for their uh, moments of fame uh, on the on like exactly. shout out to Monmouth, right? Exactly. I mean, these are those guys. And these are the guys and, and those guys. So next time you watch a college basketball game, look for those guys mm-hmm. buried at the end of the bench. And now think about those guys who are buried at the end of the bench being on the floor, not only competing, making but big shots, should have won a game against the best team in the country. Yeah. And you're right. That is sad. And mine's my sad is along the same vein, which is just a missed chance at a historic classic NCAA tournament upset. Um, the NCAA tournament is all about upsets. That's what everyone cares about, really, especially in the first few rounds. You just want to see upsets. You want to see Cinderella's. Um, and Kentucky was probably a team that most neutral fans were cheering for. I would say probably almost every neutral fan was cheering for because Leighton was, was so hated. Again, and it was against Duke. Yeah. And it was Duke, yeah. And they were just a scrappy team. They were punching above their weight against one of the great college basketball teams ever. And that was a really a missed chance at a really David versus Goliath classic college sports upset. 
you know, that was a missed chance out of Appalachian State beating Michigan in the big house, you know? Well, I mean, okay, I'm going to pump the brakes on you there because this is still Kentucky. This it's is Kentucky, Kentucky, and, and they were seed. a number two seed, sure. But, I mean, it, it, these were scrubs. Yeah. I mean, it was, like I mentioned before, the only person on this Kentucky roster who played a single minute in the NBA was Jamal Mashburn. Yeah, yeah. Nobody else got drafted. Mm-hmm. Sean Woods was undrafted and was a not was an undrafted free agent with the Pacers who didn't make the roster. I mean, no one sniffed the NBA. They had no business talent wise, especially had no business being on the same on the same floor as Duke. I think Kentucky Kentucky benefited still the same way that they do today. It's been a little bit better the last couple of years, but the same way that they benefit off playing in the SEC today, mm-hmm. which is that it's not a basketball conference and they can kind of coast through that that conference schedule. And even with that schedule, they still had six losses. And so it wasn't necessary. I mean, it's Kentucky. It's a blue blood program, but they had lost scholarships. They had lost all their best players. Their best player was a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And their graduating senior class was a bunch of fat white guys yeah. and farmers. You know, like they they had no business being there and winning this game. And yet they almost did. And but that's the thing. Here's the thing about this. And and another plug for the importance of this podcast is that if you didn't watch the game or know anything about the team, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that just two years before they'd hit been hit with all these sanctions and all their best players had transferred. You wouldn't know that, you know, there were a bunch of scrubs out there, you know, a really scrappy bunch of guys. You would just assume that it's oh, it's Kentucky. You know, they're good. They've got good world class players. This was not the case. That's a good point. Duke would go on to beat Indiana, who they had to have flashed the dismantling that Indiana did to UCLA in the other game. They beat them like 103 to 76 or something. Um, Side note, and um, I guess I'm showing my ignorance here, but I didn't know that Coach K played for Bob Knight. At Army, yeah. I did not know that. Anyways, so uh, Coach K would go on to face his former coach, Bob Knight. They would beat Indiana. They would then play a six-seed Michigan who also was known as the Fab Five, Chris Webber, Jalen Rose, Juwan Howard. They would win by 20 in that national championship game to become the first back-to-back champion since 1973 UCLA, a team that I believe was led by Bill Walton, who we talked about efficient performances earlier. Bill Walton, I believe, in the championship game went 21 of 22. Wow. Um, so back-to-back NCAA basketball championships are rare. It hadn't happened in this case for 19 years. It wouldn't happen again for another 14 years until Duke. I don't know who. Oh, Florida. Florida. There we the go. Gators, there yeah. we go. The Florida Gators led by Joe Kim Noah. Yeah. And Billy Donovan, who ironically was an assistant on Rick Pitino's staff this year at Kentucky. Oh, interesting. Did not know that. Um, all right, let's do Dagger Award. I'll go first. You want me to go first? Yeah. Um, my Dagger Award was the Thomas Hill steal in overtime that led to the Hurley game tying three. And I talked about this when we were going through the game, but the first few minutes of overtime are so important and can a lot of times can determine the outcome of the game. The, you, the Kentucky had a great start to overtime and with momentum, and that play put Duke right back in it. Um, and how many times do we see the first two minutes of overtime just determine the outcome? If, you, if Kentucky makes maybe one more play right there, they probably win. But the fact that they didn't has to feel like a dagger to them. So that was my dagger award. So my dagger award is the foul that Jamal Mashburn committed on Christian. Mm. Um, That's a big one. That was a dagger losing their 
they're only good players. Just for the psyche of the team, <laughs> yes. even, to not have him out there. That was even a if dagger. there was only like a minute left in the game, just uh -huh. the psyche of not having him out there. Because he obviously would have been the go-to guy to get the ball, although what ended up being crucial, which I hadn't even thought of until you pointed out, that Mashburn would have been the guy that was on Leitner. Mm. Um, that was a dagger. All right, let's do most detrimental player. Um, and... Like, really I don't have one. one. I'm just going to go, yeah. yeah, I don't have one. I don't think we can really hand out this award. I thought the only thing that was really a detriment to Kentucky at any point in the game was Rick Pitino. And even then, like I said, going throughout this game, I realized that his decisions, and especially in terms of the press and things like that, were it wasn't as bad as I initially thought it was. But the chance you had to win was ruined by him not putting anybody on the inbounds man. And like I said, I, I would I would bet, I would wager that no one has made that mistake since. <laughs> because that was such an infamous blunder, you know, to not to just give the guy an open throw all the way down the floor like that. So that was the only that was the only detriment that I had. But players wise, there was no detrimental player. Every yeah. single player that played minutes out there contributed in a big and important way. And that's why this game was so great. Yeah. It's why it's one of the greats. Yeah. This is one of the all time greats. Okay, I, uh, I just Googled Bill Walton, so let me read the paragraph really quickly. <laughs> okay. Walton drained 21 of 22 shots, and unofficially 25 of 26 as four were disallowed under the game's no-dunking rule at the time, and arguably the greatest single performance in NCAA history. And so, I mean, not having watched that game, I don't know if that footage exists, but that well, you, seems like maybe a better performance and say, obviously you, a more dominant performance than Leitner. Would you have rather gone 10 for 10 or 21 of 22? Uh, I think uh, I'd rather go 21 of 22. But just to be able to say that you didn't miss... I mean, as a perfect segue into the MVP, I mean, I think the MVP is pretty clearly Christian Leitner yeah. for, you know, of the game, but and this he didn't miss a single shot, yeah. you know, this was legendary, but you, I think... You, I was expecting more volume. I guess is the what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, I would I expected him to lead the team in shots, uh -huh. and even if that meant he missed a couple, yeah. you know, I would have expected that. And it wasn't, but he was clearly the MVP of the game. Yeah, he was, and it actually, I mean, like I've never had a strong opinion on Leitner, um, but this game made me like him more because, um, I, I mean, just from playing pickup basketball on, every Saturday morning, not being the guy that shoots the most. I love to see the different ways in basketball that you can affect the game. And for Leitner to do what he did in the absence of such volume, to me, was incredibly impressive and definitely the MVP of the game. And then, um, I mean, it's, it might not be worth doing, but the icon moment is what is widely held as, quote, the shot. Mm -hmm. And that's what this was. It's one of the most iconic moments in college sports and sports history. If you watch ESPN for long enough, you'll see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's what it is. It's right up there with Vince Young's scramble into the, into the end zone in the 2006 Rose Bowl, a game that we did on this podcast. It's right up there with, you know, Michael Jordan's shot in the 98 finals. You know, it's it's right up there with all the top moments in, in sports history is that shot. Um, and the celebration mm -hmm. along with it. And that's the, that's the shot that's going to be immortalized as the one of him running down the floor with his hands in the air. Um, that's the icon moment, I think. Yeah, it is. All right, anything else in this game? Do you think John Pelfrey still thinks that second foul call was BS? <laughs> probably. Players always think that foul calls are BS. <laughs> and so he probably definitely is on the side of, yeah, that was BS. All right, um, we only have one more episode in season one. And why don't you tell the people what we're going to be doing for, for episode six, Will? It is going to be 
similar to this, it's going to be out of our comfort zone because we're doing the Thrilla in Manila. Which is Ali, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier 3, uh-huh. their third fight, yep. which was you know the best of three. Uh-huh. Uh, Frazier, or, uh, Frazier won the first, Ali the second, and then uh, they had the Thrilla in Manila, which is widely regarded, again, as one of the best boxing matches ever, and I'm pumped. Smoking Joe Frazier. I'm excited to do that. And so that'll be the final episode of season one. Um, we hope you enjoyed this one. This was the 1992 NCAA tournament, Elite Eight. This was Duke versus Kentucky. If you have time, it's only about an hour and 30-some-odd minutes on YouTube. Go watch it. It's worth, well worth your time, especially if you're a sports fan. I had a lot of fun doing this one. Like we mentioned before, this was the first game we did that we didn't watch, that I hadn't seen ever before, and learned a lot about the game um, and the history behind the moment. And... So we hope you liked it, enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought in the comments. Did you think that Christian Leitner's, would you rather go 21 for 22 in an NCAA tournament game or would you rather go 10 for 10? Let us know in the, in the reviews or in the comments. Give us a five-star rating if you liked it. Um, if you have game suggestions, you know, any kind of game. Now, you, I mean, we're about to do boxing. It's any kind of sporting event. If you have a suggestion for something we should do on this podcast, let us know in the reviews um, and, and we'll do that thing. Go ahead and hit subscribe and then you'll get notifications whenever we, we release season two. Um, but we hope you enjoyed this game. Make sure you rate, review, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. And then make sure and listen to the, the last episode of, of episode or of season one should be a good one. All right. Thanks.